That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. I always tell people who are working on this radio show that what no one... No one ever wants to hear. Nobody who's tuning into the radio show ever wants to turn on the radio or queue up the podcast or hit the stream or however you're consuming this show. Nobody wants to hear you talking about how difficult your job is or how tired you are or nobody wants to hear that. You know why? Because people are tuning in as a diversion, right? They, you know, you want to get away from whatever's going on. You want to get away from being tired. You want to get away from that bad boss of yours. You want to get away from, you know, uh, the the neighbors uh, are doing a outdoor project or are getting their roof redone and the hammering of the nails. You're, you're looking to escape from whatever reality is going on. And so, what nobody wants to do is nobody wants to tune in and be like, okay, take me away. Let's hear some sports talk. And then let's hear people whining and complaining. No whining. No complaining. I think it's why people are upset at Patrick Mahomes today. And I also think it's why some people are annoyed at LeBron James for different reasons. But is it the is it different really? Patrick Mahomes has enjoyed a free ride. He's a, he's enjoyed a nice ride. I, I shouldn't say it's free because he's put in the work. He has obviously played at a high level. He's delivered world championships to Kansas City. It's not easy to do. He's a great player. He's a terrific football player. Um, you know, he's uh, worth the price of admission on most days and finds himself this season competing with a roster that isn't as good as prior years. So I think we're getting to see a little bit different side of Patrick Mahomes. Doesn't quite have the offensive line that he used to have. Doesn't have a Tyreek Hill out there to throw the ball to. It's causing some problems for him offensively. And there have been some moments where he looks more mortal than he has in other seasons. And one of those moments came yesterday during the Kansas City Chiefs football game as the Chiefs, late in the game, down by three to the Buffalo Bills, playing at home, engineered what was a terrific schoolyard football play in which Patrick Mahomes hit one of his favorite targets, probably the favorite target, the the biggest Swifty in the stadium, Travis Kelsey with a pass. Kelsey ran around a little bit and then sort of lateraled the ball to a trailing wide receiver who took it in for a score. The officials blew the whistle, called it back, said receiver lined up offsides. Now, you don't often see offensive offsides called. And partly because you may note right before the ball snapped that the receivers who are lined up on the line of scrimmage will check with the linesman who is 
down the way, just a few yards away, and they'll kind of give them a point. And if they're lined up off sides, that official will generally signal to them, hey, you're on the ball or you back up a little bit or you're good. And they do that as a courtesy, and they do it because they know it's, you know, it's difficult. There's an imaginary line drawn from where the ball is sometimes to the field. And so you don't get that call enforced a lot, but it was enforced in yesterday's game. And in fact, the receiver was lined up off sides, and Patrick Mahomes was not too happy about it. And, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes fired up after the game on the sideline as he's screaming at the officials, you know, we're playing our asses off out here, and basically you're taking this away from us. And in the post-game news conference, you've got Patrick Mahomes talking, you've got Andy Reid talking, the Chiefs are upset, but I also think it's one of these moments where the rest of us are tuning into your diversion, Patrick Mahomes, and we're hearing you complain about your job. Here's Patrick Mahomes. No, I mean, the, the thing is, I'd rather let, let us play, man. Like, let us play the game, and then whatever happens, happens. Like, the whole throwing the flag and deciding the game one or another, um, that, that, that's what hurts me. That's why, like, last week I didn't say anything because it's, it's letting us play, man. Let us, let us go out there and win the game. And I said I'd rather them let us play and go out there and, and see who wins. I mean, that's what you want as a competitor is you, you practice all week to go out there and try to win. And uh, you want it to be about the, your team and that team and see what happens. You never want it to be – you don't want to be talking about this stuff after the game. Um, and and, that, and that, that's, that's, that's it, man. I'm not worried about if there was a flag on the next player or whatever, like not a flag. It's, I just want to go out there and play and then see what happens at the end, see what the score is, and then, and then, then we can, I can live with the results. I mean, the, the flag today was tough. Just, I mean, offensive offsides, it's, it's, it's something that, I mean, you, as, a, as a, like I said, elementary school, we talk about, you line up, you point to the ref, you're good, you're not good. If not, they come to you, hey, we talk, you need to get off the ball more, you need to be on the ball more. You have a discussion. I mean, that's, that's, that's the ref's job. I mean, they, you want to have an open discussion so that you can go out there and put the best product you can on the field. Um, and for him to throw that flag, no explanation, no anything. And I, I saw the pitcher, and he, I mean, he probably is, I mean, barely off, barely off sides, but for him to, to take the game into his hands, over a, a call like that, that doesn't affect the play at all, at all, didn't affect anything. Um, I mean, it's just tough, man. And like I said, man, that's a Hall of Fame tight end making a Hall of Fame play that won't be shown because we threw a flag on for an offensive offsides. And so it takes away from not only this game and this season, but from a legendary career that Travis has had. And I mean, that hurts me because I know how, how how hard he works for. Yeah, there it is. Canarius Tony was lined up offside. He ended up being the the ultimate recipient of the ball after Travis Kelsey makes a really nice play to lateral him the ball. The Chiefs have more fun than anybody on offense. But what do you make of Patrick Mahomes complaining about this? He's taking some criticism. I think people are kind of tired of the Chiefs having their run, playing in the AFC title game every year, getting to the Super Bowl multiple times, world champions, defending world champions. Uh, by the letter of the law, Kadarius Tony is offsides. He lines up, and it's... It's pretty egregious. I mean, his foot, it's not that his toe's on the line. He's literally almost straddling where the line of scrimmage would be. And for people who are saying, let them play, I would argue that, like, the Buffalo Bills are, you know, probably looking at that going, hey, look, if we were offside on the play, they were going to get a free play. They're offside. Letter of the law, absolutely. But you tell me, are you with Patrick Mahomes on this or not? 
75. I'm going to raise another tentacle of this conversation. LeBron James, fantastic athlete. Simultaneously, the Lakers go out and win the in-season tournament. Los Angeles Lakers, playing like young men, win the in-season tournament. The Lakers are going to hang a championship banner. That's right. Commemorating this inaugural win in the first NBA championship in-season tournament. Will they get rings? I don't know. But they will get $500,000 each. Now, I got to be honest with you. I was not a fan of this in-season tournament. And then I saw some of these teams playing, and I went, oh, man, they are playing like they care about who wins this tournament. And in the end, I'm looking at the Lakers and LeBron at the end saying, hey, look, um, you know, young players are getting more money. Everybody's getting a $500,000 check. They're getting paid. And I'm left a little bit turned off by the fact that the Lakers, who I have seen glide through other parts of the early season in previous years, suddenly played like there was something on the line. And there's something about this that annoys me. And maybe it's just as simple as, hey, for people who go and buy tickets or support their team or root for their team, don't you wish that the NBA players who sort of flipped the switch and played hard would do this all the time? Don't you wish that you could, on a Tuesday night, go to Moda Center and see the best that the Blazers have against the best that the visiting team has and not have to question, do they care? Are they on cruise control? Are they on load management? For me, I'm taking the positive of this in-season tournament. It's a win. And I'm kind of wondering if Adam Silver's on to something here. You know he was trying to make the early season games more important and, and better played. But I'm also kind of wondering if if the typical NBA player is not motivated by just showing up on a Thursday and playing a game. And if it takes a little financial consideration to get the players to bring their full juice to the game, are we that far off from a model in the NBA that pays players a base salary and then rewards them on a per-win basis? Would you support that as a fan? That you, when you show up to the arena, hey, everybody's getting paid, everybody's getting base contract that they can negotiate to a certain level. Certainly, the star players are getting more money, but there's, uh, you know, twenty-five grand hanging in the balance per player tonight. Winning team's going to get it all. If we got better games, better basketball, teams pushing the accelerator to the floor, saying, "Hey, we're going all in. We're trying to win every single game." Would that not make the league itself better? 503-417-7575. I want you to weigh in. Tell me, are you with Patrick Mahomes? Are you against him? And what do you make of this in-season tournament? LeBron James and his teammates played like something mattered. Because uh, my youngest over here, uh, my rookies, my second-year guys, um, some of them haven't experienced playoff basketball. Uh, some of their paychecks are not as equipped as some of the older guys on our team. So, And then some of our fans... During the December and January months, they start, they kind of stall out a little bit. So I felt like it's my obligation and it's my responsibility to keep everybody engaged, including my teammates, including our fans for our beautiful sport. So that's why I was locked in from day one. He was locked in from day one. And I'm left going, what's so hard about being locked in all the time if you're making the kind of money that NBA players are making? 
Am I out on my front lawn or do I have a point there? You tell me. 503-417-7575. Bill is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Bill, go ahead. Yeah, I don't agree with Patrick Mahomes' complaints. Um, Not because I'm against the Chiefs, but they made it clear last night that this is a point of emphasis within the league. Um, It had only been called twice the year before and once the year before that, but it's already been called 11 times this year. And it was called on a receiver who's been known to have problems with uh, penalties and whatnot. And I think Patrick Mahomes is just looking for a bailout for a mistake, a mental mistake that uh, his receiver needs to get better at. Yeah, I think there's some frustration, too, with the Chiefs. You could just see it. You know, the previous two drives, they were unable to move the ball either. Mahomes is getting pressure that he really isn't used to. And he doesn't have Tyreek Hill out there. I'm with you. I, I, you know, I think. Look, if you know it's a point of emphasis, if you know that it's getting called around the league more often, and you are that receiver, you better make sure you're on side before the ball snapped. Particularly in that situation, when you have that play called, you don't want that called back. Bob's in Beaverton. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, the question is really: if he caught the pass? Or not, and if you if you didn't catch your pass, we wouldn't be talking about it. Secondly, we're living in a lawless society today. Look at downtown Portland. So the the rules are the rules, and the officials enforce the rules, just like I personally support the police. So let's move on. It's entertainment. Let's let's watch next weekend. Yeah, I appreciate you. Appreciate you. And I think he's hitting on something there, like like kind of what I started the show with. Like, you know, and he talks about our society and the issues in our society. You're right. You know, it's not just it's not just lawlessness. It's there is a ethical issue in business, you know, and I think it really if we go back and we start to look at kind of the intersection or the parallels between ethics in sports and ethics in business and life in our culture, in American culture. I mean, you can draw lines. You can draw parallels from Enron to Lance Armstrong, from Balco to the mortgage crisis collapse. You can look at fraud in business. You can look at fraud in sports. And you can see parallels where, like, society, our society lost its way and our sports scene lost its way. And so what you don't want to do on your weekend or on your Monday night or your Thursday night, when you are tuning into an NFL game to get away from all that other crap, the last thing you want to do is turn on a game and see like a playground argument between uh, Patrick Mahomes and the officiating crew over, hey, you know, let it be decided on the field, and the officials are going, hey, you still have to line up correctly. It's part of the game. We're here to enforce the game. Like, there needs to be a yard duty here to enforce the game. And so I, I'm with the officials on that. Steven, why is it bothering people so much, what Patrick Mahomes is doing? Well, it's really the first time Patrick Mahomes has gone out of his way to look like this, right? To really you know, go after the officials and complain like this. And I think it's more surprising than anything because you know the Chiefs they've been a you know they've been a really good team. You could maybe call them a dynasty the last couple seasons, and they really are still kind of likable, right? Like the Chiefs are one of the more likable teams. You know, Patrick Mahomes is in the quarterback documentary. He comes off really great in that, and so there's really been no reason not to like Patrick Mahomes. This is kind of the first reason to be like, you know what? 
you're just you get all the calls anyways. You're and now since you don't get one one call in the game and it was an egregious penalty on Kadarius Tony, he was blatantly off sides, and you're gonna complain about this and say it's the worst call ever, doesn't affect anything. Like I think that's why people are getting mad at him is because we've never seen it out of Patrick Mahomes. And so like I'm with Mahomes that it didn't have any effect on the play, but I'm also with the refs like Tony was egregiously offsides. You couldn't even see the football when you're watching the replay. They have to call that penalty. They have to call some type of penalty on that play, even though it had no effect on the actual play. So I, it's tough, man. Like I don't, you know, I think Patrick Mahomes comes off as looking like an entitled baby in this situation. But I like Patrick Mahomes. It doesn't bother me because it's really the first time that this has happened for him. And you know, I think he'll learn. But you know, Ryan Clark, he he made a good point about this. Um, he talked about how Patrick Mahomes is just such a good teammate. He'll never call out his teammates. He could so easily call out Kadarius Tony for a lot of mistakes that yes. guy's made. He has yes. dropped a lot of key passes. He makes a lot of penalties. He doesn't call him out. He's always going to have his players back. And for that, like Mahomes is taking the brunt of all of this. When it should be Kadarius Tony, the one that should be taking the brunt for being the, for getting called for the penalty and on the play, John. Tony starts like pouting on the play after he didn't get the ball. He thought there was should have been a penalty. He looks at the ref. He complains. He turns around and Kelsey's flipping him the ball. Like yeah. Tony should be the one that's getting the getting the brunt of all the criticism. But since Patrick Mahomes is the man, he's the MVP. He's the guy. He's taking the criticism. So I don't have a problem with what Mahomes is saying. I think he's wrong in this situation, but I really don't have a problem with him. Yeah, here's Ryan Clark talking about Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes is dead wrong. Kadarius Tony is all the way offside. Offside. Here is Patrick Mahomes' problem. And if y'all think I'm wrong, y'all could tell me I'm wrong. He just being too damn good of a teammate. When when MVS totally, totally when MVS dropped that football, did you hear what Patrick Mahomes said? Patrick Mahomes said, you know what? I could have thrown it a little bit shorter to help him catch it. Patrick Mahomes, Giselle told everybody when Wes Walker dropped the ball, Tom can't throw it and catch it too. Patrick Mahomes, you can't throw it and catch it too. You put it perfectly, he dropped it. Hold him accountable. But Patrick Mahomes, being the great teammate that he is, he puts it on himself. Yeah, look, I think part of it is he's trying to be a teammate, but I don't think he's trying to put it on himself. He's pointing at the officials. He's trying to blame the officials for everything that's gone wrong with the Chiefs. Truth is, Chiefs don't have Tyreek Hill. Chiefs got a bunch of receivers that are dropping balls. Patrick Mahomes is getting sacked and getting hit and flustered in the pocket like he hasn't in the past. He's missing some offensive linemen. Chiefs aren't getting the success on the field. They're no longer the, clearly the best team in football. They might not be the best team in the AFC. And they might have to be fighting for their lives. And Buffalo certainly got them at home yesterday. So it's a frustrating loss for Mahomes. But the simple fix here is Kadarius Tony is offsides. He, you know, he should have checked with the officials. Why he didn't point at the official right before the play, who would have motioned to him take a half a step back, um, is that's on him. You know, you can't and and we can't even say like everybody keeps saying it didn't affect the play. We don't know that. Like you know, we don't know if it affected the play or not. We don't know the play call could have been different. It could have dramatically affected the play. So you have to. Play this game by the letter of the law, by the rules of the game. I don't blame the official for enforcing it. Leave it here. We got Punch and Audio ahead. Pat Casey joining us at 4 o'clock. Got to follow the rules. Patrick Mahomes. And don't tell me it didn't matter in the play, Stephen. You said that. You're guilty of that. You said it didn't matter. What if I'm playing defense for the Bills and I see the flag fall? 
You know, I, I know he's offsides or we're offsides. It's free play. So maybe I play the play differently. I don't know. Line up right, Patrick. I mean, it's just that is true. That's a good point. It's just it's such an easy thing for Canarias Tony to do, and he didn't do it. Like, it just, you know, I don't see how you cannot blame anybody but Tony on that play. And also, it was a hell of a play by Travis I mean, Kelsey. Unbelievable. I mean, really nice. And as a guy who live bet the Bills, John, I was like, I'm going to lose because of this. Unbelievable. Oh, there you go. Jay is in Portland. Jay, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I just, this is why the NFL is king. You know, we're in a, a, non, um, a non-market city that doesn't have an NFL team. And on Monday, we're talking about NFL football. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's a little bit what the NBA misses out on. I, I, I like that the NBA did this in-season tournament. It reminds me it, it's the model of the European football, the FA Cup, Champions League, you know, try and get fans' interest in other ways with teams that normally don't win um, or maybe don't or we'll have more incentive, I guess, to play in, in other things outside of the uh, the standard league schedule. But, you know, we're talking about NFL football in Portland on a Monday for for referees. And I just, yeah. you know, no matter, no matter I, and I guarantee you when the finals are on in the NBA, we're going to be talking about the NFL draft. At the same time, just as much as we're talking about the NBA Finals, or we'll be talking about some off-season acquisition that the NFL just—they know what they're doing and they have it right. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah, the NFL—it's not accidental that the NFL's ratings are what they are, and that fans in Kansas City feel like they have a chance to win, and fans in. Most NFL cities, when the season starts, the New York Jets fans thought they were going to go to the playoffs, for crying out loud. The NFL makes you believe. At the beginning of the college season, how many teams felt like they had a legit shot to get to the playoff? Like, legit, even delusional fans, maybe uh, 12 or 15 fan bases could have said, maybe we can get to the playoff. In the NFL, I think, I'd venture to say every season there's probably 20 to 25 teams that legitimately think, hey, if everything falls in place, look at us. Sam's in Portland. Sam, welcome to the conversation. John, a few things. One, I I thought it was great to see uh, Mahomes lose his mind. It was kind of like seeing Belichick on college game day, you know, seeing them outside of the the normal character that we see all the time. Let me ask you something on that. Let me ask you something. Is it because he's had so much success, he's had his fun, You've had enough of that? You like to see him a little uncomfortable? Well, I didn't necessarily like it. I just thought it was it was interesting. I was like, wow, I've, I've never seen this part of him, but I, I guess he does have some passion. He's always composed. And I think something just, maybe he's having a bad day, but it all just came together and, and uh, he lost his mind, which usually he's, you know, we never saw that from Belichick on the sideline. Belichick's the same guy, you know. So I didn't necessarily enjoy it, but I thought it was interesting to see it. The other thing, though, I'll push back on everybody that calls in and says the rules are the rules, the law is the law. Somebody on ESPN today, either Olofsky or Clark, showed that Tony had had done that the entire game. 
like five or six different times he was offside and never once got called. Miles Garrett and T.J. Watt are held on every play. So if we're going to go along the line of the rules, the rule, the laws, the law, moving forward, every time there's a holding or a P.I., it needs to be called. And you know, you and I both know it's unrealistic. That's why guys do it, because they know probably three to four times out of five, they're not going to get called. So I think I saw the play when it happened. I saw the flag. And I knew, you know, it was over. But I don't, I don't agree with the rule is the rule because okay. The but let me. All right, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But let me ask you, Sam, have you yeah. ever, have you ever gone above seventy five miles an hour on the freeway? Uh, honestly, no. Okay, I, let me talk. <laughs> all right, forget. It. I got to talk to someone else. Stephen, have you ever gone above seventy five miles an hour on the freeway? Uh, yes, I have. Yes. You don't get flagged. You don't get a ticket every time you do that. But if I did pull you over and I was a trooper and I said, Stephen, you were going 83, I clocked you. You'd take the ticket and probably as you drove away, you'd go, you know, I wish I wouldn't have got that ticket, but I have been over the limit a few times yeah, and not I, got called. I, I would be thinking, man, that was a really dumb decision. I didn't have to be going 83. I just decided to do it. And uh, yeah, that's on me. Every time you speed or you gently roll through a stop sign, you're not going to get a ticket. You know, the law says you need to come to a complete stop. You need to follow the speed limit. The laws are there to what? Keep the road safer. But every once in a while, you're going to get a you're going to probably get a ticket if that's the way you drive. And and if Sam doesn't drive over the limit, bless him. Um, but just don't, stay out of the fast lane. If that's if you're in the fast lane, that's equally annoying. But I'm just saying, like, I'm not a reckless driver. I haven't a ticket knock on wood in a long time. But I do know that, like, holding in the NFL, yes, you could call it on every play. You also could have an undercover trooper on the freeway following you everywhere you drove. And at the end of your day, they'd go, you, you committed six infractions today. They're not going to give you six tickets. They're not going to do that. But if you do get caught speeding, you're going to get a ticket. And so, you know, Canarius Tony broke the rule you got to have a rule that says you need to be on the line of scrimmage or behind the line of scrimmage to be an eligible receiver and you have to have the officials there to enforce it and you start saying we're going to selectively enforce it becomes a very slippery slope zach is in portland zach welcome to the conversation hey john how are you i'm well how about you i'm doing well thank you uh I, I want to say two things. So the Mahomes thing, um, you know, even um, even the likable modern day uh, athletes that uh, tend to do everything right, uh, once again prove to us they even have a breaking point of accountability. They continue to fail in 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 showing us like no matter what, even when we are wrong, you always have to be accountable. Ultimately, everybody has that breaking point in modern sports today, and so. Uh, sad to see that because in general he's a great guy. He's a great leader. He's a he's the winner. He's he's somebody for everybody to look to look up to. But uh, I disagree with uh, him him blaming the refs for their mistakes. So that's one. The second one is I want to talk about the, the proposal of a base salary for the NBA players, like you mentioned. I think you're spot on. I think it would it would dramatically change the game. And I think, I think it would make it way better. Um, you know, if you had a tiered system of obviously maybe one through five of like rookies all the way up to 
Celebron type or whatever, uh, Giannis, whoever is maybe a level five, and they get a, a very high base salary. But each win should be rewarded. And if you if you don't win, you don't get money. You don't get money. You have to win to make more money. Everybody is going to make a good base salary, and they're all going to be rich regardless. But if you win, you are incentivizing, you know, the winning. And, and yeah, the, the older athletes that didn't get paid so much, they didn't need the incentive. They, they realized the reward of being able to represent the NBA, represent uh, being looked up to by kids and all that. That was a reward in and of itself. That's why they played so hard every single game, 82 games a year, every single game because they knew it was a privilege. Well, now where even the individual is bigger than the team or or bigger than the sport or whatever it is, even in these team sports, uh, it's convoluted things quite a bit. And so I think a way to, to, to kind of bring that back is to pay somebody a base. And then you'd have actual value for players who maybe aren't typically looked at as valuable because they can't score as well because it's a scorer's league. But the guys who actually rebound, play defense, good teammates, all the little things that we look at as, as those guys are annoying, but they actually are the guys that, that help you win, they make a lot of money. And so maybe, I, you know, when we got rid of Damian Lillard here in Portland, I, I didn't mind it that much. Not because I don't like Damian Lillard. He is a good representation of what, a, what an athlete should be, and he's an unbelievable scorer. But he probably gave up about as many points as he actually scored himself. And so, so you know, and, and that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, yeah. but is the culture that, that, that Lillard really set in Portland one of winning, or did he set a culture of scoring? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He made a lot of money. And became the face of the franchise and became the focal point of the offense and, you know, became the biggest fish in that fishbowl that Rasheed Wallace and Bonzi Wells complained about. And Damian Lillard, I'll give him credit, understood the advantage of being in a fishbowl. He didn't say, everybody's looking at me. Everybody's counting my drinks when I'm at the strip club. Uh, everybody's following me around. Everybody's, you know... He, he didn't say that. Instead, he said, this is great. I am happy to be the big fish in the small pond. I'm going to make lots of money. I'm going to need the ball in my hands all the time. The general manager who drafted me has got control of the franchise. The owners died. And this is not necessarily a bad thing for me because he's going to surround me with everything that I need to be successful because uh, he wants to look good. Because if I look good, he looks good. And this went on for a while until the general manager ended up being forced out. Neil Olshay, a problem to work with. People didn't enjoy being around him. And then Damian Lillard was left in a situation where he looked around and said, hey, you know what? I don't need all the shots. I don't need the ball all the time. I've made the money. I've maxed out my contract. Um, doesn't look like this is going anywhere. I'd like to be somewhere else. How about, hmm, let me give you a list. Let me uh, get out a sheet of paper here. I'll write down all the NBA cities that I'm willing to go to. Let me see, uh, Miami. Um, uh, okay, that's it, Miami. And so he presents his wish list to Joe Cronin, who's the general manager, but not really. Bert Cold has put Joe Cronin in that position so that he can still have a measure of control over the roster and be the de facto GM while also sitting on a uh, beach wearing a Speedo in Greece. Too much information for me, but probably true. And 
Joe Cronin then runs that list past Burt Cold, who goes, damn it, we're not trading you to Miami. In fact, we'll go and send you to Milwaukee. Starts with an M. And so they send him to Milwaukee. He packs a parka and uh, goes off to play with Giannis. And the narrative in Portland is, you know, you got left behind. You didn't get, you know, you got something in return, but you didn't get a dollar-for-dollar transaction with Dame. And you're left feeling not so good about this NBA team. I, I love the idea, John, that you have of, you know, win games, get paid more money, more like a sales a sales job, right? You make a sale, you get the commission, you get a base salary. I would, I'd love it. I think it would make the NBA that much better. But isn't the problem, because they have this model, like in tennis and golf, like you have to win to win money. Like if you lose, you don't win that money. But that's an individual sport. Isn't that the problem where you look at a team sport and you say, well, I, I, the players would never sign up for it because they don't want to be tied to you know whoever the fifth starter is in the NBA and say, well, this guy is basically in charge of how much money I make because he's no good. Like, in theory, I think it's awesome, but it, it would never go down that way because the players would never agree agree to it. I agree. I think we should incentivize the regular season, not just the in season tournament. Don's and Tiger. Don, go ahead. I think Patrick Mahomes. This is off the subject, but I think his uh, legacy took a big hit in the public eyes for his rant on the sideline against the refs. Not only that, when he met up with Josh, Josh Allen and he did it again. I think he has been in commercials. Everybody looked at him as really a nice guy. And then they saw what he did, and he was literally out of control. I mean, his face was all crumpled up. And in too many times, they give them a pass for acting out. But really, he uh, he did something that we never thought he would ever do. Yeah, look, I don't know if he's ruined his legacy. I think that's going too far. I just think he needs to have someone in his circle tell him, hey, Pat, you sound like you're whining. We all need somebody. Anna's my somebody. She'll be like, you sound like you're whining. Knock it off. Nobody wants to hear about that. We need somebody like that. I hope Patrick Mahomes has that person in his circle. Mike Yam, NFL Network up next. Pat Casey, Oregon State baseball coach, former coach, at 4 o'clock. He's going into the Hall of Fame in college baseball. All that's still ahead. I, uh, I order every Christmas season my children. I order them a book. It's become kind of my gift to each of the three girls. And I'll write a little something-something on the inside flap of the book. And for the two younger ones, I got them the same book this year. Uh, Our friend Michael Yam, formerly the Pac-12 Network, now with the NFL Network, uh, has written a book. It's called Fried Rice and Marinara. I love that. He's mixing his culture and the foods he grew up eating Mikey M, NFL Network, joining us now. We'll get to the book, but I want to ask you, lining up offsides, Patrick Mahomes, what was the reaction in your world as you uh, sort of digested that in the last 24 hours? All right, so, John, first of all, I appreciate you having me on, and it's great to hear your voice and really appreciate the support on the book. Are we not all watching that game, watching the replays, thinking, hey, tough, This is it's clear, He's, he's lined up offsides. I get it. Three, four, five years ago, not a common call. 
it's been something that's been called this season and last year. We saw more of these situations. I, I know it's a buzzkill, and you don't want to lose a game that way. It's not just the one play, though, that Kansas City is is on the losing side of that particular matchup. Now, it's it's a huge moment in the game, but, you know, for all the the vilifying that people do in terms of officiating, I think they got it right. I think they did too. And if they're going to enforce it, you got to enforce it. I put it on the receiver as well. You've got to check with the linesman to make sure that you're on side. I mean, that's, that's no part question. of what that it's a simple thing. Just look over and, and you know, it. Uh mental error, if anything, um, do you think Mahomes is reading the room? Yeah. Like he, He's loved, and he hasn't had a stretch of his career where he's struggled like this. Do you think part of it is the frustration that the Chiefs are having this season? I think there's no question. It's the majority of the tenacity and disappointment that you hear in his voice. Uh, It's because of the win-loss record. I mean, this is not the same Chiefs fan, John, that we've seen uh, over the last few years or so. And more specifically, it's just a different offense. They're not performing at the same level. You know, the proof is really just in the stats. I mean, they're scoring in the low 20s. The explosive plays aren't there. Heading into this past weekend, the numbers eerily similar for Patrick Mahomes as they are Jordan Love. The reason why the Chiefs have had success this year has more to do with their defense and less to do with their offense. And I don't think that's a Patrick Mahomes issue. I think that's really a, a playmaker situation. You know, had it not been for, you know, an MB, MBS catch, uh, you know, maybe we're, we're talking about a different result. You can't always rely on Travis Kelsey. Rasheed Rice has had some really good moments this season. He's come on stronger. Kelsey, you know, I, I just sort of name-checked him. Travis hasn't even looked like the Travis Kelsey that I've seen the last couple of seasons. I, I, I think there's something missing. I, I don't I don't know how to put my finger on it or exactly what it is, but you know, from a I don't know if it's just having too much pressure on him, knowing that the defensive game plan really centers around him as one of the the only real pass catcher that that team actually has. But I, I think last night the frustration just got to Mahomes. Right now we're watching Kansas City with some trials and tribulations. They have five losses. Looking over at Philadelphia, they lose to the Niners. They lose to the Cowboys in not close fashion. What is going on in the league? Is this just the NFL being the NFL, or is there a changing of the power? I think it's it's probably more to do with the NFL and the parity that we have in this league. You know, There's a reason why. There, there's something special about dynasties in sports. You can you can name check a bunch of them over the years that we've seen, and it's not just the NFL, just in general. It's really hard to achieve high-level success year in and year out. And I do give the Chiefs credit for performing at that level. And by the way, who knows? Maybe there's something magical in Andy Reid's uh, you know, mind that really changes the fortunes of this team on the offensive side. But I think they are kind of who we thought they are or, or were heading, you know, at this point, heading into week 14 of the season and now week 15 coming up. I, I think San Francisco is still the best team. And I think last year they sort of showed had it not been for Brock Purdy injury in that NFC championship game. I don't know if the Chiefs win that Super Bowl. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, maybe they don't beat the Eagles, right, in that game. I just would have liked to see them at their best. Philly, once again, I I look at that team and the roster, and I give Roseman, uh, their general manager, a lot of credit for always being willing to tinker and make make some adjustments. 
But that front line looks a whole lot different defensively this season than it did last year. And it's good. It just last year it was historically great. I just think with turnover in the league at different spots, sometimes you're going to get these ebbs and flows. And, you know, there's other teams that are, you know, up and coming, right? Like if, if Tua doesn't have the amount of issues that he has health-wise last year, we were really surprised about the success that they're having this season. You know, the Ravens, I, I still think the two best teams in the NFL right now are San Francisco and Baltimore. They're the two most complete teams that can beat you in terms of offense and defense and special teams. So I like those squads in particular. They were my Super Bowl prediction before the year started. It's looking good, so I'll, I'll stick with it. But, you know, I, I just think when you see these rosters get tinkered, I think most of the NFL figured out, hey, how do we build a team to beat Kansas City. That's been the objective the last couple seasons, and I don't know if Kansas City has done everything that they needed to do to stay as one of the premier teams. Like, they, they didn't adjust. I think there was so much reliance on the draft and more specifically what we were going to get in those wide receivers, and it hasn't paid off. Mike Yam, NFL Network with us, host of NFL Total Access. Author Mike Yam, Fried Rice and Marinara is the book. It's written by Mike Yam. I bought a couple of copies online, giving them to my two youngest daughters who, Mike, we say they're Chitalian, they're Chinese-Italian. This book speaks speaks their love language. Why'd you write the book? For a lot of reasons, John. Um, You know, I think when I was a kid, I can can tell you the books that my mom used to read to me, and none of them featured a character that was Asian. None of them featured a mixed-race family, and and I'm Chinese and Italian myself, so I certainly understand maybe the food combinations that are happening in your household. But, um, you know, just the fact that from a diversity standpoint, there's been some strides, but still – really, really short, a lot of shortcomings in the publishing world in terms of of catching up to what I would classify as the real world. And you're more likely to read a book with, you know, featuring a white character or an inanimate object than you are to get a diverse character. And to me, that's a problem. And even more macro, you know, 2020, there was an uptick in hate crimes against the Asian American community. And I was very disappointed and disheartened by some of the the storytelling around those events. And, And the reality is, I just don't think there were enough storytellers. And I think about my own career, I I didn't, I didn't know that this was a job, John. Like, I didn't know you could be a sportscaster, despite the fact that I played all the sports and I watched all the games. Never clicked in my head. So I, I can't help but think if I knew storytelling, being a broadcaster, creative mediums was a real option for me. Maybe it would have shaped my thinking a little bit earlier than, than college, which is when I realized, hey, like, maybe I can do this. Mike, the illustrations look amazing. I went on to Barnes and Noble and bought a couple of copies of the book. Is that is that the best place to get them, or where where can people pick up the book? Yeah, any anywhere. Uh, so Amazon or Barnes and Noble are, are probably the two best places right now online to go and and get the book. I'm sort of a one man band. And by the way, because because I know where you're located. Vooks was the publisher for this, and they're a company that's based in Portland. Um, I actually got connected with those guys through a mutual friend of ours and Lamar Hurd, who's obviously the Blazers analyst. Um, he went to Oregon State with the CEO of the company, so that's how we got connected. But they do a remarkable job animating children's stories with read-along text and, and that narration. So it really helps fast-track that reading. But that's how all of this, you know, you mentioned – you know, sort of that introduction there with, with the connections to the Pac-12, but that's how a lot of this stuff came about. So um, just another Portland company that uh, that is doing really well. But Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com uh, to answer your question. Uh, look, uh, it's interesting to me the process of this. How did you pick an illustrator? How did that all come together? 
Yeah, a lot of it was because of that team at Books. Like they are experts when it comes to illustrations and and animation more specifically. And and one of the things that they had done was reach out to their community and said, hey, like anyone who you know would be interested in doing the illustrations for the story, you know, submit some proposals and. I remember thinking to myself, boy, I would love someone who's diverse doing the illustrations for this, but I, I didn't want to know kind of, you know, who was who. I just wanted to see what the illustrations were. And the books team said, hey, well, I, we think we got someone. I said, can you just send all of the, the samples that you got? And we all netted out because Laura's work was was tremendous. And she's worked for like on Apple Plus for Wolfwalkers and all these great, you know, high end projects. So I, I, you know, at one point, I think she got mad at me because I kept saying, boy, you're you're making this thing kind of credible here because that was a first time author. I hadn't done this before. And, uh, you know, her ability to have some of these pictures come to life. They're all based off of my actual family members. Um, All those illustrations that are in there, even the house is like my old childhood house. It was it was really cool. Fried Rice and Marinara is the name of the book. It's written by Mike Yam. Be a great holiday gift. I picked up two copies. Mike, uh, I want to see this on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Let's roll. I'm going to need a couple of your <laughs> listeners then to help Let's me out it. on that one. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, I'll tweet a link to it as well, but check it out. Mike, thanks for joining us always on short notice, of course. No, you're the best, man. I appreciate the invite. And by the way, thanks for keeping me up on what's been happening in this league for a really long period of time. I feel like I get most of my information on, on the Pac-12 conference from you, so keep it up. Appreciate you. Mike Yam, there he is. Books called Fried Rice and Marinara. Coming up, Pat Casey, former Oregon State baseball coach. He's going into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. I want to talk to Casey about his career, what he makes of collegiate athletics what he's learned in the last few years and what are his plans in this retirement of his that's one of our uh, christmas holiday traditions i will buy the uh, kids a book and damn it make them read christmas eve no uh buy them a book every year that kind of gets maybe some stage that they're going through and mike yam's book Fried rice and marinara really uh, seem to hit the spot. We'll talk about that more with Anna when she joins the show coming up later this hour. Five at five, still ahead. Got some punch it audio still ahead. We're also going to visit with Pat Casey, legendary baseball coach. I think Pat Casey is the greatest success story in the history of Oregon sports. Period. End stop. Not a better story of success in our state than this guy. We've brought him on the show. We've talked about him growing up in the state. Irrigating farmland, moving those uh, irrigation pipes. We've talked about his connection with the University of Portland. We've talked about George Fox. We've certainly talked about how he built Oregon State baseball into a national power. He's going into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. It was announced late last week. I sent him a text on Friday. I said, we've got to get you on. Pat Casey, three-time national champion, five-time National Coach of the Year, joining us now. How are you? Hey, man, I'm good. How are you? 
I'm well. I think you're the greatest sports success story in the state. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, there'll be a lot of debate about that. There's been some great uh, stories in this state. Um, I've been around to follow a lot of them and uh, just feel fortunate that I'm I'm someone that got to um, uh, experience uh, being in, in, in the state that he grew up in and, and, and mm. follow his, his dream and, and, and then eventually get into coaching and uh, just be part of the history of Oregon sports. So it's I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, I think it's a great story. And, you know, you obviously had chances and opportunities to leave. Other people tried to hire you away. W- was it the connection with the state that kept you here, or was it just kind of different circumstances each time? Well, it, 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 it always was, uh, you know, my family first. You know, the state's uh, changed quite a bit over the last uh, 15 years, you know, from when I was growing up. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure it was the state that kept me here as much as it was the family, the players. You know, it's uh, I just had some weird things happen to me. You know, I got on that plane the first time I, I went to really look at a job I thought I would take at Notre Dame. And I'm flying into Chicago, you know, um, incognito you know stealth and i guy walks on the plane and his bags are bigger than him and it was kevin gunderson and i said oh my gosh look at susan who's behind his gundy you know so <laughs> you know i just i think it was the players just the uh just my feeling about how you know uh my family and their you know their situation their comfort their familiarity you know my wife wanted it. she would have been fine doing anything she would have supported it but you know i i don't know just just a whole bunch of things but i i, I feel very fortunate that i was given the opportunity uh to coach and 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 given that you know early on when we could have been a lot better uh you know they could have could have went another direction so uh, i'm i really i'm very humbled by that opportunity give me an idea because often we'll hear coaches or people who will set goals and they'll say things like, I want to win a national championship and they don't get anywhere near it. And yet you go to a place that had not had history with baseball. You win three of them. You set the table for success beyond you. hundred players selected in the draft, 20 go on to play in the major leagues, more than 20. You know, was it, it, I'm sure it's incremental day-to-day stuff, but when you sat down at Oregon state to build that thing, what were you thinking? Well, I, I, I want to find that first press book that came out because I know I said that I, I think we can compete regionally and eventually compete nationally. And I believe that um, I didn't have a blueprint for it, I, I, uh, I, but I always felt like um, when I did something that there was something more than just doing it. Um, they, at the time, didn't have the opportunities that we had when we got into the South. There wasn't that ability to play a Stanford or an Arizona State or USC or UCLA and therefore you know that that was a big part of us being able to expand and do the things but it's just um, just a lot of things happened you know we, we had to have a stadium and at the time you know the athletic director he admitted he said I'm up against it man I can't help you but if you find somebody go for it and when I came back with told him I'd met a family that wanted to give me a piece of property worth $5 million. I think he's about ready to fall out of his chair, but, um, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, you know, God stadium starts, you know, uh, becoming a reality and, and getting in the South became a reality. And, um, you know, just a, a step at a time, you know, the 98 club, I, I just, it, it really hurts me to think that that team didn't get a chance to play in a regional because they, 
we couldn't RPI out because of the league we were in. The, the format that we were in at that time was the North, and uh, that team, in my opinion, was a World Series team. Had they played mm-hmm. well in the regional. You know, everyone always looked, and I grew up in California, but it, I was born in the state of Oregon, and everybody always looked up to the Pacific Northwest and said, you can't play baseball there because of the weather. And then you proved you could not only play there, you could win it all there. And, you know, how, you know, in the early years, did you, did you fight that stigma? Did you fight, you know, players saying, oh, I don't know if I can go up there, rains all the time? How, how did you combat that? Well, we absolutely did, John. We, we we fought that all the time. I had good players leave the state that said, geez, coach, I'd love to go there, but I've been playing in the rain my whole my whole career, you know. Um, just one step at a time. And it was just convincing somebody that, yeah, you know, I, I kind of bought into that a little bit too. You know, I, there was days I'd say, man, wouldn't it be unbelievable what we could do if I was practicing outside yeah. from November till the, till the time, you know. And then I started thinking, well, if I think that way, how do I go out and recruit a kid and try to convince him that that's not accurate? So, you know, when a guy said rain, I said, yeah, it rains. There ain't no doubt. But you're going to be in a field house doing some things. A guy out there and with great weather isn't going to be doing. You're going to cre- we're going to create some fundamental habits that are going to change what kind of player you are. And um, you're going to be around your players. It's going to be a tighter group of guys. And just things like that that brought in one guy. And we were very, very fortunate, too, to have that run of guys there that you're well aware of that, you know, eventually took us to the World Series. You know, that, those, you know if you think about it, there were some guys – Trevor Crow was one of them. He was a kid that played uh, at Arizona's first round pick, and he was from Westview. He's one of the guys that said, you know, I don't want to play in the rain. And um, uh, Jed Lowry was at North Salem, and he went to Stanford. There, there was more guys in there than just guys like Darwin and Jacoby and Buck. That, the, that time of Oregon baseball was fantastic. And I have tremendous respect for both those guys, and they were both very good to me in the recruiting process. Um, and and um, so – you know, just we 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 hit we hit it on the head there when we when we got that group of guys to come in, and we could, you know, we we didn't feel like we were chasing numbers uh, as we were before, and um, you know, I, I got some real encouragement from Mike Gillespie at USC, who probably was one of the two or three best coaches I ever coached against, the most difficult. Um, uh, and he was a bitch to coach against now because, you know, you he would do anything. I mean, they would double steal. They would drag. They would push. They'd hit and run. They'd start a run or they'd delay. Um, and so, you know, he just had to prepare for everything. But he, for some reason, he he liked me, and he um, supported us coming in the South. Um, and then when we won it, he wrote me a letter that I just uh, – I still have it. It's funny. I didn't know I had it, but they were cleaning all my – you know, uh, not very good about putting stuff up. So I had boxes of stuff down there. Mitch called me and said, hey, Case, I got a bunch of stuff for you. So anyway, uh, this, you know, a lot of things happen, man. You know, I was fortunate um, to be in the right place. Uh, and I think you create the right time. I think you create the right scenarios. But, um, you know, um, we, I, I had some great guys come in here. And then, then it was about everything. It was about – and I remember saying this at the very beginning. I'd go down to Bob Burton's restaurant on Friday and give away tickets, uh, to 10 tickets to each one of the guys on the dugout club boards so that we get people to go to the game. And I said, someday you guys are going to be buying these, man. I got <laughs> But I got to have you. You got to have the dugout club. So it was, it was our managers and our, and our boosters and our doctors and our equipment people. And, um, you know, I went to a wedding this weekend. And there was a, a kid there, and he was a manager in one of the teams. He goes, Coach, the thing I love about most is – everybody treats me like I was one of the players, you know, and I was just the manager. I said, no, no, you're not just something. 
you're the best at whatever you do, man. You weren't just a manager. You were a great manager. And so, uh, and I felt that way. And, um, you know, so uh, good things uh, happened uh, and they started happening quite often after a while. I think one of the most challenging things that coaches run into is, you know, players who aren't playing, keeping them engaged. And I heard over and over from guys who played for you that everybody felt like they were part of it. Is there an art to that, a science to that, to making everybody like that manager feel like they're part of what you're doing? Well, um, you know, I think part of it is just the way I was raised, but I think, you know, and I, and I, and I tell you, there are players that I wish, I wish I'd have done a better job with of of that, Uh, especially early when I wasn't as I didn't communicate as well uh, as I want to just wasn't wise enough to um, understand that. But um, I think it's, it's, you want to have to bring guys in, you have to make them. And I, and I do, and I feel like that. I, I feel like that, that we are all, great we all have this unbelievable unimaginable potential that lies within us to be great and 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 it's just hard to get in there and and then make it come because it takes work and and when i told randy that i meant that i meant like okay if you're not good enough to be a baseball player you know i mean that that that's not it there's nothing wrong with that what do you want you know i want to be part of the team i want to be part of this deal come on man be a manager and i uh, Morgan Pearson, who helps me with my foundation, uh, he was the same way. He wanted to be a baseball player, and I, I told him one day, Morgan, you're you're a good high school player, you're just not good enough to play here. And he said, I want to be around it. I said, No problem, I, I want you around it. And, and um, he ended up working for the um, Texas Rangers for a while in their IT deal, and uh, um, just just things like that. You know, it's easy to see uh, Jacoby and 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 Darwin and and Conforto and uh, and. and um, you know the people, Kwani and Trev, and and of course Rutschman is just, you know, you you uh, you those guys are easy to identify. But if you go talk to those guys, um, they'll tell you what how well they handled and how well they treated people that were in our program and around our program. Adley Rutschman, everyone's watching him. Nobody's surprised who saw him at Oregon State. But what makes him so good? <laughs> well. You know, um, he's got the it factor, and you know what that is because you've been you cover sports. You know, you go to to a venue, you go to an arena, you go someplace, there. and no matter what, yeah. you yeah, you say that guy over there. I know something's gonna you know might not happen tonight, but he's still he's still you know carrying this club. He had the it factor. He had the size. He had um, um, the 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 work ethic. He had the the pedigree. Um, but he had this, this passion about him. There are times when there are guys that are very talented that sometimes you have to really try to, um, you know, get them to understand you got to do this every day. Sometimes you got to kick those guys in the pants a little bit, um, cause they are good and they've been good and they've been told they're good. And, you know, um, they've been given a lot of, uh, pats on the back and then all of a sudden they get hit in the face and, and it had never happened and they don't know how to get up. Adley was never he was never going to let anything get, get by him that was because he didn't work hard enough or he didn't, he didn't have enough passion, unbelievable parents. Um, and I, I do think that there is a, a, a gene pool of what, a, what, what your anatomy allows you to do. And then, um, he's, he's six two two fifteen. That's, that's pretty good foundation. Um, but just, just, just the dude's overall character, who he is, the players loved him. I mean, this guy was, he was one of the guys, man, and he didn't he didn't try to separate himself as far as I want to be recognized or anything like that. Um, 
had the athleticism of a shortstop at a, at a, at a catching position, which is uh, pretty unique. Yeah, and I, I think, too, you watched him, and he, when he was in college and he'd go on a tear, I thought, you know, he's had a great game or a great weekend, and it just never seemed to stop. Like, you know, at what point did you go, uh, this is just Adley, this is going to be who he is? Well, you know, even his freshman year, you know, it's people, he didn't start switch hitting, you know, you know, he wasn't born a switch hitter. He started late out to eighth grade, something like that, ninth grade. Um, so he hit, I think, about 280 right-handed as a freshman, and he only hit about 180 left-handed. I think he hit about 230, 235 as a freshman. But there were times when he was a freshman, a lot of times when he was at the plate in a big situation, that I was extremely glad that he was at the plate. I didn't care what his batting average. I knew that when the situation was big, he was going to meet, meet it. And he... he 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 always seemed to find a way to sacrifice fly or walk mm-hmm. or get a bunt down or get a hit, even when he was not hitting 400. Um, so um, knew right away he was going to be something special um, as a, as a leader. Knew right away he was going to be something special as a as a defender, and knew that he had big potential as a hitter. I don't think you ever dream the guy is going to do what he did and hit 400 back-to-back years yeah. and break most hits in the World Series. Just just the things he did repeatedly over and over were uh, came, became very obvious that he was going to be something different. Pat Casey okay. going, into the, going into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. That'll happen in February. Where were you? What was your reaction when you found out, Pat, you're going into the class, you're going into the Hall of Fame? <laughs> well... You know, I it wasn't like I wasn't overwhelmed or anything. Like you know, I was, it's an unbelievable honor. Um, I just got a call and they, you know, they let me know that I was, uh, you know, and I just I was just very grateful. I was driving my car, matter of fact, as soon as I were driving <laughs> somewhere, and um, you know, uh, I just thought it, it just it, it made me a uh, little bit. I was just kind of like taken back a little bit because of the fact that I go. Come on, man! I'm not that old. I thought all these guys who went to the Hall of Fame were really, really old, man. I, I, I wanted to say I should be in a uniform, you know. So, it, it, but it made me. It's kind of like when people say, "Yeah, you know," I kind of have this flashback. I mean, it made me think, like, of just some certain things that happened at Oregon State that that were always special to me, and they kind of happened like a flash, 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 like four or five mm-hmm. of them. But I just, I, I said, "Wow, man, thanks." I just, it's an honor, and um, I'm, I'm fully aware that it was all those players that came there that put the, made the thing happen. And I mean, and they did. And I, I'll tell you what, you know, we as coaches get a little bit excited and sentimental or, you know, get really hype on our guys. But I'll tell you, our guys were special. And, and they made a special place, and they continue to make it a special place. And um, it's kind of cool. I was really, really taken back. But it was, it was um, it's a very, it's a, like every individual award, it's, it's a result of a group effort. And and um, if I receive it with any type of pride, it is that of representing all those guys that, that unit up with me and what coaches. You, I mean, just great coaches. What do you say now? Oregon State is in, you know, a fight for its existence along with Washington State. And, you know, you're a guy who's got a lot of love for the conference. I was sad seeing the football season end. Um, but as you, I hear you talking about building Oregon State baseball, I'm hopeful that there's another Pat Casey at Oregon State somewhere that is going to fight like that for this for this university. What do you make of what's going on right now? 
Well, I, I, I would probably, uh, you know, um, have the same feelings that most of us do here in the state of Oregon. And that is, you know, what a, what a tremendous conference that the PAC 12 has been for so long. And to think that, that the decision to dissolve was based upon the ability to, um, have more money in the coffers, um, being a more, I guess, um, prestigious conference. Um, but it, it, it mirrors what's happening in society. And that is that, um, you know, how quickly can I get mine and how much can I get and who does it harm does not matter. And, you know, um, I, I don't know all the ins and outs that went down. It's been going down for a long time, obviously. And there have been a lot of things um, that, and a lot of people that are responsible for it, in my opinion. And, you know, the NC2A is one of them. Um, obviously, we see that universities and those that make decisions at universities in some cases um, feel like they need to make more money in order to sustain what they want to sustain, which makes it kind of counter to them talking about the student athlete all the time. Um, so um, until the someone comes out and say, let's just, let's just say what it is and let's try to fix it. I don't think it's ever going to get fixed, but um, the NC2A has allowed um, a lot of things to happen to where, um, it doesn't seem like it's college athletics anymore. And, um, that's sad. And, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that it's sustainable where it's at. I'm not sure it's good where it's at. Um, and I don't think it's good, uh, for the student athlete. Yeah. And, you know, I know the transfer portal and name image likeness, like, you know, even as you're talking and I'm thinking about in the back of my mind that, a generation of coaches that were in your era, you know, you want to do everything for the student athletes. You probably are okay with them sharing in some financial success. And, but the wild west of it doesn't feel at all like college athletics. No. And that, and that's the problem. And I don't think anybody, you know, who, who's, who's blaming a uh, athlete who's being offered six or $7 million to come and play a year of football for you. I mean, who's blaming the kid? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I don't begrudge him. Uh, I, I just, I just don't think that um, giving someone something they haven't earned is 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 really uh, good for anything. Generally, when someone is um, uh, given something that they haven't earned, they create this false sense of entitlement, and that eventually becomes a uh, uh, an inflated sense of need. And um, I don't think there's anybody out there that works for something works hard for something and is rewarded for it, isn't, isn't really proud of it. But I think someone who's continually given something, you will eventually drive out the incentive to work at all. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that the, the student athlete, and like I said, I don't believe it's their fault, but I don't think it's in the best interest of college athletics to say, like you said, Hey, what's the wild, wild West. Um, and, and this kid's, you know, hey, some university gave him four. Okay, you gave him five. How about the NC2A stepping in and, and having a, a role of saying, you know what, let's create some revenue sharing. Let's create a limit on how much each university can. We'll give you a pool of money. We'll give you a number. I don't care what the number is, but whatever that number is, you can't exceed it. That gives, give, they, they are supposed to be the equity center of, of the world. And um, it seems to me over time that they've allowed that to kind of um, – 
manifests itself that maybe that's not completely the way it is. And if you see a baseball player, they can't have a full ride, but a basketball player can. If you see a soccer girl, she can't have a full ride, can't have three meals, but a football player can. I mean, I'm just thinking that soon after, I, I wish, I think they should have uh, athletic scholarships for all, all sports. Just, yeah. just have a, whatever the limit is, fine. If it's 20 for baseball, 20. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just think there's so many problems with that that it's not sustainable. And it would be football's a different beast. They need to allow, allow it to be run different. And they now have to have revenue sharing, get a commissioner, run football, yeah. um, have the NC2A. Um, pour money into some, you know, into some universities and be part of the equation of, of NIL money, have it come from the university and have a limit on it. And if it's $20 million a year for your athletic department, it's $20 million. And at least you'd feel like there's some equity there. But right now, like you say, it's the wild, wild west, you know, um, and, and, and it's, it's hard to imagine that some kid can say, look, I'll come to your university and I'm just wondering what you have available for me. And that, and that's what he's driving his decision on or, or, or her. So um, I'm not sure that's good for, for anybody involved. And I certainly don't blame the athlete. I, I, I can see where they are uh, benefiting from financially. That's for sure. Are you concerned about Oregon state baseball and what happens conference affiliation next year beyond, or, does the regionality of it make it, you know, at baseball, you could still play Stanford, you could still play Cal, you could play Arizona, Arizona State, you know, you could pick those series up, but do you worry at all? Uh, I think you worry a little bit. Um, I I worry a little bit about just just the fact of the connection to a, to a big-name conference. Um, like you said, you hit it on the head. We can still play Stanford, Cal, you, you know, um, we can still do things like that. And, and, and if the Mountain West is the merge, which I, I'm, I don't have any idea if it is or not, but if it is, you know, you got Fresno State, you got San Diego State, um, you got, you got, you know, you got some teams that you can compete with there. And, and if you win the league, you're going to host a regional. So uh, that, that, that part's a, a good part. Um, but just like when we went to the South, the, the, um, we had a mi- immediate, street cred with recruits immediate when we when we were in the north and i went down and i recruited a kid in the bay area and he said you don't play stanford or you go to arizona we don't play arizona you don't play arizona state you know you know when we joined we had immediate street cred and the first year was was a very difficult year there is no question about it but um um you do worry a little bit about that um obviously mitch is doing a great job the club this year is really really good and um you know uh I think that momentum is going to help us for sure, uh, but um, yeah, I think I think you I think you worry about it even if you're uh, I think yeah, I think you worry about it if you're a university if you're a student athlete at any university. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a student athlete at University of Washington and I'm a volleyball player, I'm going to say, what are we really in that league? Or if I'm at Stanford, am I really are we really going to go to the East Coast? Yeah. But I just don't think it's going to happen for non-revenue sports. I just don't know how they they do that. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think ultimately the non-revenue sports are going to end up back in something geographically that may even be called the Pac-12. I mean, I, it should have been thought about by the presidents before they decided to pull. It was all football-driven. We know it. Everybody knows it. And it feels like that could be unwound, but it's going to take Stanford and Cal having to travel to the East Coast for a year or two to figure that out. It's just silly. Uh, Pat, I really appreciate you. 
uh, congratulations to you. You've got street cred everywhere now. You're in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, so, you know, anytime you want on the show, you let me know. I love talking with you. Right on, man. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Go be. All right. All right. There he is, Pat Casey. He's going in the College Baseball Hall of Fame in February. Love the storytelling. A lot of wisdom. Leave it here. Anna is in the studio. Good interview with Pat Casey. I love that. I could have I could have talked to him for 40 minutes. We had about 22 minutes with Pat Casey there, and I felt like I was a sponge, just uh, getting all kinds of good intel, wisdom, very process-oriented kid who grew up in the state, and I would argue is the greatest success story in sports in state history. Three-time national champion, Pat Casey, Oregon State, now going into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. Anna, he said something that I think applies to parents about giving kids something they haven't earned. Do you think we should be making our kids work a little harder? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, like yesterday. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, I think there's <laughs> something about the entitlement, Stephen. I mean, Pat Casey parenting book. Come on. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, you know, and I'm included in this. We, we, we as uh, parents right now, we are definitely entitling our kids to be uh, a little softer. So we need to be a little harder. And I need to work on that myself. Uh, just speaking out loud to everybody. I'm going to take the kids out. I'm going to take them out to a farm, make them move the irrigation pipes. <laughs> Never mind if the farmer comes running out of the house going, why are you moving my pipes? Uh, Who are you? We're, we're parenting here. Come on. Get these kids going. Um, Anna, you also missed it earlier. We had Mike Yam with the NFL Network on. Nice. Who, by the way, Mike Yam's mother is Italian. Okay. His father's Chinese. Hey, how about that? He's Chitalian. Yes. So our children, you're Taiwanese, but, you know, yeah, yeah. Chinese, Italian. Yeah. Chitalians. Chitalians. He's written a book. It's called Fried Rice and Marinara. Wait, really? Yeah. That's what it's called? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. It's a children's book. I bought two copies of it. They're coming in the mail. Oh, nice. Barnes & Noble. He's Ordered them up. speaking our language. Ordered them up. Why didn't you write that book? Why didn't I write that book? Why is Mike Yam going to get all the fun <laughs> and write the book? It's called Fried Rice and, and Marinara. And Marinara. Yeah. That's awesome. Because the story goes, for mm -hmm. his birthday, he was asked, um, I looked ahead in the book, uh, the, the, the story goes, he, he was asked for his birthday, what do you, what's your favorite food? And he said, I like fried rice and marinara, pasta. Mm -hmm. And they said, uh, well, let's do both. And so the story is of this Chitalian kid mm -hmm. who is uh, multicultural, who uh, basically said he had a birthday party and he had both foods. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. It's a good story. If our kids write a book someday, it'll just be called My House Was Very Loud. No, my, I think the title will be, Dad, can I have three ninety I'm playing Roblox. My, I get an alert on my phone. The nine-year-old is like a maniac on Roblox. So I don't, I don't know how I feel about Roblox as a game. You? Yeah, I don't like it. I'm you know? For it. I know. I want to shut it down like yesterday. All right, let's do Again, it. Again, yesterday. So I'm not giving the three ninety nine. Yeah. Jim is in Salem. Wants to argue with me. Why do people want to argue? Jim, you want to argue? Well, what? Oh, let me start with this argument first. You couldn't do 40 minutes with Pat Casey. It'd be more like four hours if you had the chance. <laughs> Truth. Truth. Bill Bowerman is 
greatest coach in Oregon State history, not just in track and field, not just in cross country, but you know he spoke to almost every incoming freshman class of athletes coming to the University of Oregon when he was coaching there. He was a major influence on all athletes. Really good story. You know his dad was a former governor. Did you know that? Yeah. And and Anna, he can't write that book because he's got fried brain with pesto sauce. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a pesto guy. I am a red meat sauce guy. But yes, <laughs> that's pretty good. I like that. Mm-hmm. Good good crack. I'll say this. Like look, I'm not here to split hairs. Be like Bowerman or Pat Casey. Who's the better story? But I'm talking about you know Bowerman trained a bunch of Olympic athletes, like thirty plus Olympic athletes, fifty plus All Americans, bunch of NCAA champions. Um, he didn't even like being called a coach. You know, he was just sort of uh, a mentor and was the co-founder of Nike, as people look back at that waffle racer shoe that uh, was designed. But I think Pat Casey, when you look at kind of the success of Oregon State baseball, was a nothing. And Pat Casey made it into a power three-time national champion and left it in a place that, like, is unprecedented. I think you go back and you look at, you know, the history of Oregon track and field, you certainly would put the statue of Bowerman, and, you know, and Prefontaine, and you would add in some Nike there, and you could certainly make an argument that, you know, that's a story that could you could put head-to-head with it. But I just, I think the Pat Casey story is the greatest success story. What differentiates a good coach from a great historic coach? like Pat Casey or Bill Bowerman, who well, didn't want to be called a coach. Yeah, I, I think part of it is sometimes a coach is just somebody who's coaching a game or a season, and you go, that person did a good job this season or for this game. And I kind of wonder, what in the state of college athletics right now, with all the money involved in it, I don't think we're ever going to see again coaches who coach football for like 25 years at the same university or coaches who stay and coach baseball as long as Pat Casey did or certainly the you know Bill Bowerman for all the decades he was at the University of Oregon coaching all those Olympians and national champions and I don't think you're going to see that anymore because somebody would hire him away and the stress of recruiting and the NIL and the transfer portal you know burn people like you know Chris Peterson burned out mm-hmm. David Shaw throwing in the keys and Frankly, the money that's involved in coaching, I think, has changed the kinds of people who are into coaching. You're seeing recruiters now who are becoming the head coach. You know, the, that, the chief recruiter is no longer the recruiting guy. He's the head coach because everybody knows he's got the pipeline and the ability to go recruit players. And so I think there's several different elements to coaching. We could break it down. Like, you know, there is preparation. There is, uh, you know, is a team prepared to play? Can the coach prep the team, get them ready to play? There is actual X and O game coaching. There's recruiting. It's a huge part of coaching. And, you know, you could break down in an individual game or season or week of a season or even in a career who did what very well. But part of what I hear from Pat Casey was just simply rooted in uh, process and fundamentals and doing the work today that nobody's watching and nobody's seeing that is going to reap you tremendous benefit and dividends two years from now on the field in the win-loss column. And there's not a lot of people, I, I think, that everybody wants the success, but it's that work 
that you're doing to lead up to the success that I don't think people are interested in doing. I think it's a fascinating study because obviously, you know, there's a lot of coaches at every level, youth coaches, college coaches, professional, and you've talked to enough of them over the course of your career. Like, that's what's interesting to me. Like, what, you know, sets a Nick Saban or a Bill Belichick uh, apart, a Jim Harbaugh apart, a Pat Casey apart from the rest of the crowd? You know, is it the X factor or is it like what you're saying where it's it's the work that they put in and that they execute, that they have their players put in that lead up to the big moment so that when they're on the big stage, they can, you know, see it through to the end. I think it's one of the biggest, most interesting things to me in watching coaches coach. Looking at a place like USC, for example, inherent advantages, uh, inherent brand advantages, location advantages. They're in a conference. They have resources. There's a lot leading USC's way. right. Why doesn't USC win every year? Right. And and I think it's really interesting that the folks at USC can't quite see it. They yeah. don't even get it. They're too close to it. Mm-hmm. If USC went out and hired somebody like Jonathan Smith and put him in the USC environment, mm-hmm. they'd be unstoppable. So I but guess they the, they don't. Right. They go for the shiny, mm-hmm. flashy thing that costs them ten million a year. Because Lincoln Riley, it's the, we're going to reinvent football. And Lincoln Riley comes in, and what does he do? Wins eight games. You know, nine games. For now, but, like, do you see him down the line being a legacy coach? Or is is what you're saying, the notion of a legacy coach, is that slowly an eroding idea? It's an eroding idea because if he wanted to be a legacy coach, if he was built in that way, he would still be at Oklahoma. You know, he's chasing the shiny thing, too, and he's getting $10 million a year. And by the way, they're paying him so much money that when it gets difficult, what's Lincoln Riley going to do? He's going to say, I have enough money to retire. I don't need this anymore. Like David Shaw and Chris Peterson, I'll go be on TV or I'll go watch football games. I don't need to be in it anymore. And so I do think that, and plus, the I mean, it's so hard with the transfer portal and everything else. It's just, it's a never-ending cycle of energy it's i think it's become a recruiter's game and i think you get fewer and fewer coaches that are in it for the long slow building block burn of it at least in football Mm -hmm. i still think you can find that in other places Mm -hmm. and i think it's interesting to see like just as i would study usc and go okay why doesn't usc win all the time right you look at the nfl and you ask yourself that the nfl is built for Parity, right? Yeah. The way that the league drafts players, worst team gets the first pick. The schedule, the worst team gets the easiest schedule. The best team gets the hardest schedule. And everything is geared. Salary cap is hard. Everybody gets the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. Why do the same teams lose every year? Why are the Jets bad every year? You have to study that if you're the Jets. You have to step back and go, okay, wait, there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. We're doing something wrong. And why that hasn't been adjusted, you know, why, why, why do the same coaches win? Some of it is, yeah, in college there are places that have advantages. You know, a Duke or a North Carolina or Kentucky is going to have an advantage. But I'm always interested in the places like Oregon State Baseball that pop up out of nowhere mm-hmm. with a guy like Pat Casey at the center of it and beat the pants off everybody. 
for like a 20-year run, wins multiple national championships, sends, you know, 100 players get drafted, 20 of them play in the big leagues. Like, you're looking at that and you're going, he's doing something that's different. And it's evident when you spend time around it that there's a culture that they build in places like Oregon State Baseball. There's a culture that's built that is that overcomes everything else. And they don't have it at USC. And that's Lincoln Riley's biggest thing. And I think it's really interesting that he went out and he found, you know, a defensive coach that's coaching at North Dakota State. Really interesting hire by Lincoln Riley. Did he figure something out? Did he make a substance hire on the defensive side of the ball there? Is he's going out and going, nobody's trying to hire that guy. But Lincoln Riley's going, that's the guy I have to have. That's a really interesting move by Lincoln Riley and USC. Leave it here. You got the BFT. A lot of people calling in now. Want to talk about uh, everything going on with uh, kids and sports. Ready for some calls? Jerry's in Southeast Portland. Jerry, go ahead. Hey, John. How are you? Great, uh, as usual. Hey, um, I was fortunate a few, a couple, a few years ago to go to a uh, breakfast sponsored by the Salem YMCA, and it was at the Salem Convention Center. I think it was a Good Friday prayer breakfast thing, and the guest, the keynote speaker, was Pat Casey, and uh, I got to also sit at this table where Mel Counts was at the table, so it was heavy duty uh, Beaver uh, flavor as well. But the thing that you had mentioned in uh, that uh, Pat had mentioned in his talk with you, uh, and what stuck with me when he spoke at that event was he was all about building, and this is how cultures happen, obviously. He was all about building young men that would be good, uh, you know, husbands, good good uh, community members, uh, just solid citizens, and that permeated throughout his entire uh, program to where, you know, that's still the way it is, obviously, even though he's not there right now. Um, but everything that he laid down there as far as a foundation is just steeped in that culture. And yep. it's, no, it's not surprising from what he said. And then one quick thing, too. I remember uh, I, when I would come home from school, my mom would have, like, a list of stuff posted that I was supposed to do. And I had a friend who would give me a hard time, like, oh, you're supposed to wipe down the woodwork, the woodwork. And he would just give me this hard time. But uh, there was always stuff that there was no such thing as come home and then go out to play. You come home and do some stuff, and then you could go out and play until dinner time. So anyway, that's just the yeah. whole culture well, that we don't quite do, you know, as much as we used to, you know kids picking berries and i know there's regulation and stuff i laughed when you said moving irrigation pipe because i had to work at a farm in high school moving irrigation pipe and i was like five eight and in august that's tough to move it over the top of the corn roads <laughs> but anyway <laughs> got it uh, thank you for that jerry good stuff taking notes jerry thank you for the parenting tips making my list right now of things my children need to do we, got, when they we need get to home from school grow some corn and get some irrigation pipes it always goes back to growing corn for you my list right now fred is in medford fred welcome yeah you touch a nerve talking about the new york jets just a few minutes ago i've been a sure. lifelong fan and was around for super bowl three when the jets won and thought Joe Willie White Shoes Namath would go on to win more Super Bowls, but as time went on and history went on, we had the result 
that we have. And so uh, I've argued this with my family uh, back in Jersey over the years that uh, the Jets' ownership just really sucks. And uh, I did a little math lesson on that. Basically, since uh, Weeb Eubank in 1970, the Jets have won 34% of their games, and they've hired 16 different coaches. The Giants, which my family loves, uh, with the Mara family, they've hired 10 coaches, and they've won 48% of their games. The Steelers organization, which is one of the best, 56% of their games they've won since 1970. How many coaches do you think they've had in that time? Four. I count three. three. Am I wrong? Okay. No, you're probably right. I was just so your point to continuity yep. and who yep. you hire, I think, is huge. It is obviously some fan bases are more difficult than others to play for, and and Jets fans and the New York media is not the easiest. So I get it, but um, I walked but, away from big boy sports about seven years ago, and I've been better for it just because. <laughs> You just needed a new team. It's you know what's funny? Of our culture. All right, I do this all the time. I'm Fred. Uh, the New York Jets in the last ten years are have played 162 games, and they are f- 55 and 107. Yep. Whew. Only team that's worse in the last ten years is Jacksonville, 53 and 109. And you're right about sort of the turnover. It you know when you look at Jacksonville and the New York Jets and the Cleveland Browns and the Washington Commanders, it, you know Houston Texans, you're looking at teams that have had tremendous turnover. The thank you for the call. The continuity of sticking with a coach, even if the coach is kind of mediocre, I think is a lesson that is not learned over and over by franchises. Kyle Whittingham at Utah. You look at his coaching record year by year. He had some years where he was very mediocre, and Utah stuck with him. And think about the culture and the continuity that Utah football has right now. If you had interrupted that with a short-sighted, let's fire the guy, we need to win, let's go out and get a recruiter. Now the recruiter comes in, wins eight or ten games, and leaves. Now you got to go hire another coach. It's kind of the cycle Oregon's got in until Dan Lanning now is saying, hey, I'm, the here, I'm here for the long haul. That continuity is huge, and winning teams have it and losing teams don't. And some of it is that they're short-sighted and impatient. Other times, I think they hire the get-rich-quick guy who leaves them. So, you know, careful what you wish for. Are you looking for a Christmas gift for that sports fan in your life? We're going to do a whole Christmas gift show tomorrow. Going to tell you all the Christmas gifts you need to buy for the Sports fan in your life. I do recommend a subscription, though, at johnconzano.com. You want to surprise somebody with a gift that continues for 365 days. You can uh, sign up and give a gift subscription to the favorite sports fan in your life. Anna's here. Am I a difficult person to shop for? Impossible. What's going on with my voice today? I don't know. Can you? Does it sound bad? I can't even tell because I I'm listening in my own. You know what I mean? I don't know what I sound like. How bad do I sound? Sound a little different. Like Steven? how? Like I was gonna say it's it's not it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> 
What do you mean by that? Like you can tell there's a difference today. I thought the other day it wasn't as bad. Like you couldn't really yeah. tell. Today I think you can tell that you know you got a little something. I play hurt. You do, and I don't talk about it. I'm not one of these people who comes on the show. I'm like, I don't feel good. I don't do that. Okay, <laughs> I just play right through it. I'm sorry if it. I don't sound healthy. I feel good. I feel better than I sound. Um, you know, I'm not going to complain. That's not my style. My sixth grade teacher keeps sending me photographs of the kids in the classroom from sixth grade. He apparently has scrapbooks yeah. from like the 40 years he taught. He must have really liked you kids. Yeah, I think he did. He's a really good teacher. And he uh, emailed me a few photos the other day and then... On Sunday, yesterday, emailed me a whole nother batch from the time we went as a class to go pick out a Christmas tree at the Christmas tree farm. I happen to be wearing, in said photo, I'm in sixth grade, I happen to be wearing a flag football t-shirt and jeans, and I'm wearing red, white, and blue wristbands on both both arms. Very patriotic. Red, white, and blue. It's like Rocky Balboa wristbands uh, <laughs> that I'm wearing. Did you wear wristbands to school, Stephen? Um, I cannot say that I did. Uh, that's pretty awesome, though. I've got wristbands on, and I am very involved in cutting that tree down. They're, they're loud and proud wristbands. Yeah. yeah. They're hey, very distinct. You know what's really cool about that photo? What, so what? there's a photo. There's like five kids in it, mm -hmm. in one of them where we're carrying the tree. Yeah. And kid named Eddie Wilson's in the photo. Uh huh. I heard from Eddie the other day. Eddie, Ed Wilson's got a daughter who just accepted a softball scholarship to the University of Utah. No way. So I've been in touch with him, and he's like, hey, we don't understand the world of NIL and coaching and all this and sports, and but his daughter's going to Utah on a softball scholarship. So I was kind of messaging with him. And then also in the photo is one Ron Barbosa. Now, if Ron Barbosa or somebody who knows Ron Barbosa is listening to this show, he's now Dr. Ron Barbosa, and he is a trauma surgeon at Legacy Emanuel Hospital right here in the uh, Portland metropolitan area. Wow. So, Ron, drop me a note if you get this. I got a photo of you and I getting a Christmas tree in the sixth grade. <laughs> I don't know, does that give me some credit if I'm in like the ER room and Dr. Barbosa comes in? <laughs> hey, I've known you for a while. Only if you have a severe head wound. Yeah. What's happening? Like, why are you guys, you know, cutting down a Christmas tree? We put together? it in the classroom. So, oh, to put you guys put a Christmas tree in the classroom. That's Mr. That was how Mr. LaCursey rolled. Did you decorate okay? it like as a class too? Yeah, we decorated it. And yeah, in, there's a full class photo and did, and the decorated tree in the background. Yeah. Do you notice in row two of the class photo? Because Mr. LaCursey was the teacher who had all the animals in the room. Yeah, one of the students is holding a giant rat. Mm -hmm. You yep. see that? Yep, <laughs> really charming. It was yep. never a boring day. No, no, the and the kid behind him, a girl, is holding a rat on her head yeah. with the tail dangling down yeah. in front of her long Farrah Fawcett-style fringe bangs yep. on her face. I remember those kids well. I might have thrown up those if were that my, were my child. Those were my friends. Yeah. Those were my friends. Uh-huh. All right. That's charming. We got the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. I just want to say one thing about teachers. You know, the uh, gift that you give as a teacher, it keeps going and going. I still have things I learned from Mr. LaCursey I use today. So, shout out to all the teachers. Number one. 
Is this right? There's two Monday night football games tonight, and they're both starting at the same time. Which will you watch? Titans and Dolphins on ESPN and the Packers and Giants on ABC. What are you going to do with that, Steven? Got a problem? Um, I'll probably start with the Giants-Packers. I just feel like the Dolphins are going to absolutely crush the Titans. So give me the Giants-Packers first and then you know, kind of flip. Just watch the score. So do you have a parlay, your five-star special you want to give? Uh, no, I don't have a five-star lock, but I did go with the Giants plus six. Giants plus six. That's Steven's pick. Number two. Anna, what do you got? Well, we were talking about legacy coaches. Deion Sanders says he has no plans mm. on leaving the Buffaloes for another job anytime soon. He loves Boulder, he says, and Colorado. Not chasing finances, not chasing the bag, not chasing notoriety. He's not the bag. What is he talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? He's not chasing hype, he says. He's trying to combat all of the negative recruiting because everybody else who's recruiting against him is saying what? He's only going to be there another year. You don't even know. You could be going there for four months. He could be out of there. He's not committed to that place. He's only staying as long as Shador stays. All the negative recruiting. So he's doing a good job getting out and going, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not uh, I'm not leaving. What do you make of uh, he's got? he's already got a couple transfer offensive linemen in there. The transfer yeah. portal's working well. You think Colorado competitive next season? I think they're going to be really good in the Big 12. I think it'll be... It'll be a combination of them being better, more physical, more battle-tested. They're going to be better. But also, the competition's not as good. They're going to the Big 12. They don't have to play Oregon. They don't have to play Washington. They don't have to play USC or UCLA. You know, they're going to be fine. They'll compete sooner in the Big 12. But it's a step in the right direction. I don't know what the over-under is on his win total yet, but... He wants to ride off on a white horse with a black hat in the sunset in Boulder, Colorado, winning a championship. Championships, plural. That's what he wants to do. Let's focus on one first. Number three. One winning season. Plural. <laughs> let's get win number five. Plural. First, let's get to five. Okay. I like it, though. Uh, Justin Herbert hurt again. His uh, status for Thursday night football is up in the air. He's got a, a broken pinky. He broke a middle finger earlier in the season. I would tell you more about this, but I'm trying to load the story, and for some reason it yeah. won't load. Fractured finger, throwing hand. Uh, they're, they're talking about whether or not he's going to come back at all because, um, you know, and they're fighting for a wild card spot, and they need him. So ESPN reporting that he's very likely to undergo surgery. They don't know if he'll be back for this season. It depends how the surgery goes. Reminds me a little bit of what, you know, the Oregon Ducks men's basketball team's dealing with. They got Infali Dante who had a knee surgery. Nate Biddle had a wrist surgery. They, uh, they're not doing bad, but they need those guys. Chargers need Justin Herbert. What are we on, five? Uh, four, right? Sure. Four. Number four. <laughs> Number four. We're real pros over here. I was already on four, but I thought... Did I already play that? <laughs> so I moved on. All right, number four, go. So we've all been talking about this massive contract that Shohei Otani landed. Right? $700 million. $700 million. Like, he makes so much money per day just breathing. Um, but it turns out that he's going to be deferring yeah. a massive amount of that 
like 600, like almost 68 million a year. Higher amount per year. 68 million per year so that the Dodgers can do more Mm -hmm. with the money. And so he's not holding up all the. It helps him with their cap hit. Yes. So basically, the contract's going to look like it's a $46 million a year contract on the books. But the majority of the salary will be deferred. It'll make, it'll put him at two million a year in the short term, deferred money paid out without interest between twenty thirty four and twenty forty three. Number five. Finally, uh, Juwan Howard's job Ooh. at Michigan remains uh, unchanged for now. Um, he hasn't been with the team lately because he's had surgery that he's recovering from, but he had some kind of altercation. Uh, strength at practice coach. with yeah. the strength and conditioning coach where reportedly there were fisticuffs and this is not <laughs> the first time that this no. has happened with him What's he's had going on he's there? had some issues post-game issues yeah issues with um it's just not going to work for him he, michigan he, will make it he needs to rein it in and it, you know and if he were if he were winning more if he weren't losing to oregon you know then it, they'd probably tolerate it let's be real but he's not a good enough coach to be a hothead on top of it. We're back tomorrow with another great show.